I heard the call come in over the VHF radio that uh, the tanker Jupiter was on fire and needed help immediately. This fire started with a million gallons aboard. Uh, most of what is left burning now confined to the center. The Coast Guard helicopter is also circling overhead as they continue to monitor for any possibility of oil leakage into the Saginaw River. Uh, their concern, of course, is that with all the heat, uh, whether or not the hull will hold and uh, keep the remaining uh, mixture of petroleum products, we're told, that are aboard that vessel, uh, keep them inside and uh, keep it contained from causing a real environmental disaster here on the Saginaw River. The explosion of the gasoline tanker Jupiter rocked the Saginaw River, shutting it down to ship in public traffic for weeks and leaving many questions as to who was to blame for the accident that left one man dead. I'm Rick Mixter for shipwreckpodcast.com, and this is the first podcast where I was actually there when the story unfolded. I spent the night in a live truck broadcasting reports for WNEM-TV and eventually walked the deck of the melted freighter after it was extinguished. It ignited my passion for shipwreck stories that has grown into several TV documentaries, radio stories, magazine articles, and of course, the podcast series that you're listening to right now. Several broadcasters have shared stories and raw footage with me, so I can share now for the first time the entire story of what happened in Bay County, Michigan on September 16, 1990. Each interview is copyrighted by either WSGW, WNEM, or Airworthy Productions and may not be recorded or rebroadcast in any form without written permission of the owner. Let's go back to Bay County, but we'll start 20 years before the accident to meet a young man who would later become a medal-winning Coast Guardsman. This is Paul Cormier. My whole life was service oriented. I was in the Boy Scouts and I, I love wearing the uniform, all those kind of things. Paul started thinking about law school, but his work schedule was affecting his coursework. I was working 40 hours at Eastland Lanes at Bay City in addition to going to high school. My grades suffered for it. And so by the 10th grade, I decided I want to go to college. And my counselor said, Paul, you have a 1.9 grade point. Paul worked harder on his grades and found volunteer work with the Bay County Sheriff Department's Marine Division. He was on a mission. My high school counselor said I'd never make it through college. You know, I just had to prove them wrong. Cormier graduated magna cum laude from Central Michigan University and was accepted into law school, but soon realized his future wasn't in the courtroom. My best friend was in the Coast Guard and I'd go visit him in Ludington and I really enjoyed it. So, I, you know, I figured that that's my life. The Coast Guard wanted him to go to officer training, but Paul wanted to run a rescue boat. He was assigned to the Saginaw River in Bay County, Michigan, and received training in Frankfort, Michigan, aboard their 44-footer. Started out as a reservist with Saginaw River, and then uh, I had some opportunities to go up to uh, Frankfort. I spent a couple of uh, summer stock, they call it summer stock, where you spend the summers up there. And I got qualified coxswain on the 44-foot motor lifeboat up there. No, uh, that was quite an adventure. Had some really exciting rescues. Nothing could compare to his last season active duty with the Coast Guard in the middle of September 1990. Back then, Paul lived at the Coast Guard station right on the Saginaw River. I was off that day. I just had, you know, I'm such so gung-ho back then. I had my scanner on at home and I heard the captain call in that the, that the buffalo was coming by too fast and he couldn't get his uh, pump secured in time. Bob and Gene Colby were just waking up at the marina where they kept their boat. 
They were in the Coast Guard Auxiliary, trained to respond to emergencies, and one was happening just three miles upstream from them. I was sitting on the back deck of, uh, of our 42-foot boat that we lived on. B and I heard the call come in over the VHF radio that uh, the tanker Jupiter was on fire and needed help immediately. Please stay away. Allow the police and the other emergency crews to get in and out of the area. We've got Dave Maurer on the line now. Dave, what can you tell us about what's going on out there? Fred, we have thick, black, billowing smoke still coming up and fire belching from that freighter. Uh, we're not able to get close enough to it yet. We can see uh, fire hoses trained in the air, and they are working on it. Uh, emergency authorities here in Bay County still in an organizational mode, and people are responding to deal with the uh, crisis that they have here in the Saginaw River and environment environmental crisis at this point more than anything. Uh, we have an airplane circling overhead, observing what's uh, going on with the uh, fire from that area. And we're right on a dividing line where there are uh, partly cloudy skies and to the south towards Saginaw where we've been having uh, thunder showers this morning. All of that thick black smoke is going to the south. You can see it all the way from our studios. It's blending in with the storm clouds. I would imagine people are going to be seeing this for a long time, but it doesn't look like this is going to end anytime soon. I'm going to work my way in closer, and we'll be back with you. Dave Bauer in Bay City. All right, thank you, Dave, uh, very much. That was Dave Bauer from Bay City uh, on the scene uh, near where that uh, tanker exploded and caught fire in the Saginaw River just a short distance away from the Rupp Oil Company storage area. WSGW's news coverage was among the first to get the word out about a 384-foot tanker that arrived early in the drizzly morning of September 16th bringing some 54,000 barrels of unleaded gasoline from the Sunoco refinery in Sarnia, Ontario, about a 150-mile journey from the bottom of Lake Huron to the mouth of the Saginaw River. Captain David Beckwith later told investigators he went to bed after the Jupiter tied up. We arrived at 0145. We're all fast at uh, 205. That's early morning. Pumping was stopped at 3 a.m. when the steamer Irvin Clymer passed by without incident. Captain Beckwith woke up around breakfast time when the officers changed shifts aboard the Jupiter. But the uh, word of the third mate called me at uh, 08.45 so I could uh, call our dispatcher, give him the times. <clears throat> I woke up at uh, this is the only reference I have to time from this point on. You got a big clock above my desk. I saw it said 0825. I went to the galley. Uh, we were having a crew change this day. First mate Pete Wallow was going on vacation. George Frame was coming in from Buffalo. Really, they were both outside of the first mate's room going over. Uh, Transferring the job procedures. I had uh, some business with the cook who was going to 
go up the street, uh, take the mail, we bought some groceries, and somewhere in this time, I was in the starboard hallway. I heard the winches groaning, really working. I ran to the door, looked out and saw the motor vessel Buffalo, and he was moving pretty good. Going by us, and looked, we were coming away from the dock. Ran to the pilot house, saw that uh, Pete Walton was aft. Beckwith says the Buffalo was passing so quickly that he ran to the radio to give them a piece of his mind. First intention was at least to on the radio telephone with the Buffalo and tell him he couldn't be going that fast through here. By the time I got to the pilot house, and it's a very short distance, I saw the dock was breaking up and we were coming further off the dock. So it looked like pieces of catwalk. The hose was taking the screen. I checked. We still had men on our benches. The hose was being lowered with the boom and the runners, falls. Instead of calling the Buffalo, I got a call off to Saginaw Coast Guard. American Steamship's Buffalo was loaded with coal heading up the Saginaw River to unload. Captain Beckwith saw the Jupiter's fuel hose was pulling taut as the ship pulled away from the wharf. At this point, I was figuring that there was a chance we were going to lose the cargo hose. It was going to break would spill some product possibly. I turned and set the gentle arm off and got the ship's whistle off. Jupiter's third mate, Daniel Rentschler, later told investigators he saw the Buffalo approach and ordered seaman Randall Skinner to stand by on the aft winch, a standard practice when another ship passed. The mate then shut down fuel pumps six and four, ordering seaman Thomas Sexton to shut down pump two. Pumpman James Warren also worried about the Buffalo's speed, and he went to the rail to wave his arms, hoping the Buffalo's crew would see him and slow down. Seaman Skinner watched the bow of the Jupiter surge, snapping the number four king spile under the strain. This was a 13-inch oak pole sunk deep into the river bottom. As the bow swung outward into the river, the strain on the other lines was at a breaking point. The power cord for the pipeline's motor-operated gate valve snapped and flew into the water. This contained 440 volts from shore, and the mate believed he saw a second mooring line break. The number two line was lost from its tie. The mate called on the radio to shut down the motorized operating gate valve as fuel started pouring onto the wharf. Elmer Seltz was the total petroleum man on the dock, but he couldn't get to the valve in time. He shut off the gas flow to the onshore storage tank, but by now the fuel was covering the wharf and vapors were spreading to the Jupiter. Rentschler reported seeing two flashes near the shore electric valve. Captain Beckwith was in the pilot house when he saw the fire on shore. He turned on the ship's fire suppression system. I saw fire on the dock and on the manifold area of the boat. I got the foam off. Call the engine room. Chief Engineer Charles Prescott had fire training several years prior to the accident, and he later told newspapers that he warned the company that Jupiter's fire suppression was inadequate. 
Now his worst nightmare was playing out as he turned off the ship's ventilation system to retard growth of the flames. What he described as a sonic boom rocked the ship, so he and another engineer ran to the escape hatch on deck. The captain was on the stern doing a head count of his sailors. Went to the fantail area. And we're putting on survival suits and life jackets. Took a head count. Everyone was accounted for, except for three. Asked people who were in the vicinity, and they said that two had jumped over the bow, and one had already jumped with a survival suit. Just, just prior to my coming down. 46-year-old Tom Sexton had gone over the side with mate Dan Rentschler, and neither had put on a life jacket. In the confusion, they had missed two life rings as well, and Sexton struggled to keep his head above water. Rentschler grabbed the crewman, but lost his grip and swam ashore climbing up on an old wooden dock. On board their burning ship, the captain and the rest of the crew were gearing up for their jump. Told the mates to make sure that everyone got their survival suits on properly, went back to the pilot house, the boat had stopped drifting. We stopped moving at this point. We were pretty much crossways in the river. After I made sure one more time that everyone was there, I had asked, requested assistance from Saginaw Coast Guard. I sent them in the water. I returned to tell Saginaw Coast Guard. And then we're in the water. Coast Guard Auxiliaries Bob and Gene Colby were only about three miles away from the total petroleum dock. They jumped to their 20-foot rescue boat immediately after the captain's call came in. It was about 8.30, I believe it was about 8.30. We heard it over the radio, the marine radio. And um, I'm sure it was the captain or something that hollered out the boat was on fire. And Bob says, let's get on, let's get on our boat. Let's go down there and help and see what happens. Just three months prior, Bob and Gene had responded to an overturned fishing boat on Saginaw Bay. Gene jumped into the water when it was discovered one angler had tied himself to his boat. Her actions on May 18, 1990 brought her first commendation. It was the auxiliary medal for um, saving a guy's life. Um, they were from Chicago bass fishing. They went into the hot ponds, came out. It was rough, flipped over. Uh, Bob and I went out, and the 41 in the crew went out, and I got to the one guy, and he had tied himself to the trailer I bolt. And Bob says, you're going to have to go in. So I jumped in, but I had um, a throwable with me. Working in freezing cold lake water, Gene managed to get the rope undone. I don't know how I got him untied. I have no idea, but I know he jumped on top of me, and I start going under the water. And I'll never forget the sound I made coming back up. Like, Bob, get me up there, you know? Yeah, but it worked out fine. It worked out fine, it worked out. He is a very uh, large man, very large man. On the morning of September 16th, she and her husband would earn the Coast Guard's highest honor as they approached the burning Jupiter. On reach here in the corner, oh, yes, there was a fire, I couldn't believe it. It was just, it was amazing. And there, the, the um, crew had, uh, gone into the water already. Most of them had gone through, gone into the water. 
they were pretty much grouped together. So, but the stern was kind of blocking the middle of the river and stuff. So when it let loose, so they were kind of in the middle of the river. Bob Colby steered around the stern of the Jupiter and passed the sailboat Wild Irish that was standing by to help. Dr. George Ashrell had pulled his boat close to the ship, but the crew on the Jupiter had waved him off. Yes, there were explosions. We had heard something, be you know, when it first went. But, you know, I tell you honestly, I didn't. I just focused on getting the people on the boat. I really, you know, everything else you shut off. You know, you don't look at the danger. And then afterwards you go, oh my goodness. It was warm from the heat, um, but again, you overlooked that, and um, there was, you know, people that wanted to get on the board, they were scared, on the boat, I mean, and they were scared. They just wanted help. When the Colbys arrived, only the captain was still on the Jupiter. One of the ship's engineers was floating nearby, but Gene needed help getting him aboard their rescue boat. There was one, uh, it was the uh, engineer, and uh, he, needed help getting on. And one of the crew members did help me on because he was um, up weight a lot. And he was very nervous that he tried to get himself out through the chalk, where the lines come in the chalk. He tried to get out and the guys helped him get, you know, overboard there, so. On shore, Elmer Seltz and total terminal manager Ken Forrester launched a small skiff and picked up the mate. They searched the port side of the Jupiter for Tom Sexton, but found nothing. Moving to the stern, they discovered first assistant engineer John Brightman and assistant cook Tom Callahan. It's a long time tradition that the captain is the last to leave a doomed ship. Jupiter's legend is that David Beckwith checked the crew cabins one last time and then pulled the colors from the stern before he jumped. The captain stayed last and took down an American flag, I remember that. The captain never mentioned the flag in his testimony to investigators, but admitted much of what happened was a blur. I don't remember Jumpy, but I remember he pulled aboard the military missile. Rob Short. Got someone to drive me over to the pool facility. Paramedics were already there. The Coast Guard's 41-foot boat had plucked Captain Beckwith and six others from the water. Bob and Gene Colby also headed to the station with a boatload of survivors. We took those five that we rescued uh, down to the Coast Guard station where we uh, met an ambulance and they administered uh, CPR and first aid to the gentleman that was passed out. It turns out it was nothing serious. Gene was surprised when one crewman asked them to turn around and go back to the Jupiter. I do remember one older gentleman. <laughs> he was so funny. He said, um, do you mind, could you go back? I left my teeth on the boat. Could you back and get them for me? And you know, he is as serious as serious could be. I think he was just in shock. He was just in shock. There's some additional information coming forth now regarding the uh, fire and explosion aboard the uh, tanker Jupiter, which occurred earlier this morning on the Saginaw River in Bay City. Uh, Bay Medical Center spokesman Kurt Miller uh, says that the ship is registered to Ashland Oil Company. Uh, Miller also talked about the uh, numbers of people who have been uh, treated at this time for uh, injuries. We've treated 11 people and primarily their minor injuries at this point, a variety of things like burns and abrasions. Uh, several of them jumped into the water. There are five others out with a Coast Guard, and they are primarily wet. We do have some other people here who were not injured, just came back into the hospital to be you know, with their crewmates. Um, as far as we know, there were 18 people aboard the boat. 
Just a few moments ago, I was able to talk with Nancy Schroeder, uh, the Bay County Emergency Services Director. Uh, what fuel is on the the uh, tanker? They're letting burn off. They felt that's the best way to go, rather than to pollute the waters any more than they have to. Is there danger of another uh, explosion? We've heard talk of that, but there's another compartment with 54,000 barrels of oil in it. As long as you have fuel, as long as you have fire, there's the possibility. The tank farm at Total Petroleum had nearly 20 tanks. One of them was empty of fuel, but two painters from Ohio were inside sandblasting away rust and paint. George Fetter and Russ Boyle thought the roof had caved in when the Jupiter exploded. Sometimes roofs buckle in those tanks, and they, uh, that's what I thought it was at first, and the next thing I know it didn't quit. And he, he hollered, there were flames coming through the manhole, and he hollered that uh, there was a fire, so we both took off out of there. Two million gallons of gasoline that was being unloaded this morning at the uh, total terminal on the other side of the river there. And at some point, something obviously went wrong and this fire was sparked. There's still one compartment in that ship that has not ignited yet. It is tethered by one line to the dock at this point, And efforts have been underway for a little while now, maybe about an hour, to secure the ship with a second line to keep it from breaking free. There's much concern that the fire could spread if it came across the river. Paul Cormier didn't know it, but he was going to be recruited to get that safety line to the burning ship. After seeing the Jupiter ablaze from his sailboat, he motored back to the Coast Guard station. I took the sailboat back to the station and I got in my car and went over to the Total Petroleum. And the chief of the station was there and he said, Paul, how would you like to volunteer for something? I said, what's that? He said, we got, you see the ship? It's, all, it's, only being, it's only connected by one manila line right now. And they're fearful that it's gonna float right down the, the Saginaw River on fire and torch all the marinas and tank farms on its way. Paul couldn't believe the cooperation he received when he arrived at Total Petroleum. You know, anything I asked for, just like that, it was there. And they said, Paul, you, all you got to do is tell us what you need. I said, OK, I need a spool of one inch cable. I need a, I need a tow truck to come. I need that back of that tow truck as a davit. And we got to make a bridle for that steel cable, the spool of steel cable so it can unreal. And I need two bulldozers. I got that idea from the Joseph H. Franz when it got caught under the bridge, Independence Bridge. They used two bull bulldozers to straighten it out. And that was enough. So I ordered two bulldozers because that's what we're going to use to pull the ship into shallow water. Paul quickly learned that no one had a plan on how to get a line on the Jupiter. They figured a licensed coxswain would know. So we got to get a one inch steel cable connected to it somehow. I said, somehow, how are we going to do that? Well, he just. He said, you've been trained in this kind of stuff. Just think big. You've done it for a small cable. So, okay. So uh, I came up with the whole technique. The intense heat of a million gallons of burning gasoline was a concern. So Paul put on a protective layer to shield him. I started out in full asbestos suit, gloves and everything, but I couldn't work with those. So I had to take the helmet off and I took the gloves off, but I, I was able to get the job done without getting burned. Our boat hook was melting, our aluminum boat hook. It was, it was a hot ship, you know, you can imagine the three million gallons of unleaded fuel. There was a person on shore recording the emergency response on VHS tape, but Paul said someone requested they not film his run to the Jupiter. Uh, unfortunately, they, they were instructed not to videotape me uh, because they didn't know what, what would happen. And they knew I was single, so that's why they wanted me to volunteer for it. So. In case I perished, 
A Coast Guard boat ran Paul to the burning ship where he prepped a 30 caliber shoulder line gun. He opted for the heaviest charge to ensure it made it to shore, but he wasn't about to put it on his shoulder. And because the 14 ounce is such a heavy projectile, you can't, you can't shoot it from your shoulder. You gotta put it up on the dock and uh, set it on a life jacket for some cushioning and then pull the trigger. Make sure you get the angle right and you just watch it sail through the air. And so, I, yeah, it was 750 feet. The lighter parachute cord flew as it should, but when it was attached to the one-inch steel cable that was required for pulling the Jupiter, Paul discovered it had been assembled incorrectly. We used a, a snap block. It's a pulley that opens up so you can, I attach the, the pulley to the uh, shank of the anchor, opened it up and I put the Coast Guard tow line in there and closed it up. And then I got on the Coast Guard boat and we just kept pulling, coming back, pulling pretty soon. It surfaced, the steel cable surfaced. And I go, oh shit, they put it in the wrong place. <laughs> and the chief said, Paul, we got half inch, we got, a, we got a spool of half inch nylon in the Boston Whaler. I said, hey, Em, come pick me up. A second attempt was more than some of his crew could take, but the line had to be secured to the starboard anchor of the burning ship, so Cormier went back. My whole crew with me, they're crying. And my highest rank crewman, I had to relieve him. I said, what Olaf Johnson, I had him drive the boat and he did a great job, but you just never know how you're gonna react under tremendous stress. The 41-footer crept up to the bow of the Jupiter. Most of the flames were well aft of the anchor, but Paul couldn't budge it. He needed space to get the line secured. Easier said than done, because at this point, the anchor was almost welded to the ship from the heat. So we had to get a crowbar out and pry off the uh, fluke to get the, the steel cable on it. Then I instructed the 41-footer to start backing down slowly and release the tension on the, on the steel cable until it sat on the bottom of the river. And as soon as that happened, and it was relaxed, I went over to the ship, opened up the pulley, and took out the tow line and put in the half-inch line. Then I ran the half-inch line over to the Coast Guard boat, and they tied it off on a cleat and started pulling again. Bulldozers started pulling on the steel cable, and the Jupiter was swung around into shallow water. Paul was not burned or injured, but command sent him back to the station just in case. Yeah, they, they got me to the station. I think they wanted me to be observed or something. I can't remember exactly what it was, but the station was full of people and ambulances and all kinds of stuff. It was a long time ago. The Bangor Township Fire Department quickly extinguished the fire on shore, but it was decided the Jupiter needed experts in petroleum fires. Williams Boots and Coots had a long history of working oil rig fires, but they had all of their gear in Texas. Getting it to mid-Michigan would be difficult because most of America's military transports were carrying troops, food, and armor as part of Desert Shield, America's response to Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. Boots and Coots, uh, the experts on putting out fires in super tankers and oil rigs, arrived during the night and were now told that their equipment, the rest of their equipment that they were expecting, is at Tri-City Airport. Uh, some of the delay in getting that here was that all of the C-130s in the nation virtually are committed to the Mideast, and they had to do some scratching to come up with a C-130. They found one in Florida, took it to Texas, and brought that equipment in here, hmm. and we're waiting for that equipment to arrive, and uh, at 8 o'clock, another session will be held 
and at that point they'll determine if they're going to let it burn or if they're going to go in after it. Uh, hopefully they'll have that equipment by here and I don't know exactly how long it'll take uh, to set up that equipment after it gets here. It was apparent the hull of the Jupiter was melting and although it was double hulled, letting the fire simply burn out wasn't the answer. Hundreds of thousands of gallons of gas could then spill into the river if the hull breached. River traffic was blocked by the freighter and it was too dangerous for Jean and Bob to return home to the marina. That's why the Coast Guard wouldn't let us spend our, the night on our boat because they didn't know if it would go again and there would be fire all the way down as, as I told you before. So we stayed at the station that night. News 5 continuous coverage of the Jupiter situation. The Saginaw River in Bay City continues now and just when things look better now they're starting to look worse again. Uh, you may remember the drama yesterday when uh, the Jupiter was attached to the dock with one line. Uh, the Coast Guardsmen went aboard with a second line and attached it to the anchor securing the boat in place. Uh, now we understand that that line has come loose and that line and the anchor are now resting on the bottom and the Jupiter's back into the situation it was yesterday with only one steel cable holding it in place. We'll keep watching the situation as it develops in the afternoon and of course stay tuned for uh, complete coverage of the events of the last day and a half on News 5 at 6. Boots and Coots put their high-pressure foam system on board the 180-foot cutter Bramble and moved in on the afternoon of September 17th. You'll notice the, the Boots and Coots personnel that you were just talking about uh, wearing those silver, looks like aluminum foil, but those are those insulated, what they call proximity suits, uh, that'll let them get close to uh, the hot flames there. Uh, meanwhile, the uh, Bristol Bay continues to inch closer and closer from the port side, uh, standing by as uh, you mentioned. Eric, monitoring the Coast Guard traffic right now, it appears they've changed their plan a little bit because of the uh, direction of wind, or the wind uh, speed and uh, direction of the wind. But Rick Might, a Coast Guard uh, spokesperson from Washington, is going to talk to us a little bit about what's going on. Rick, what kind of an operation will this be? This particular operation, you have a number of different factors involved. Probably the most significant thing, you have boots and coots on the Coast Guard cutter. They're the real experts in putting out these types of fires. Our cutter is going to be the platform that moves them in. Uh, the shared responsibility there will be boots and coots thinking about uh, how to fight the fire and the commanding officer of our cutter looking out for the safety of all those firefighters involved. That's right, Mike, and as you're talking, the Bramble is inching closer and closer uh, to being alongside the Jupiter. Uh, they're pumping a considerable amount of water now from the front onto the, uh, the burning midsection uh, that sagged the lowest. That's where the fuel is probably run from the six tanks. There are six compartments aboard the Jupiter. Each one holds 9,000 barrels. We can also see here that the smoke is starting to diminish as the uh, firefighting uh, foam and water is uh, uh, sprayed aboard. A triple F foam. Tell me a little bit about that. How does it work? I'm not an expert on, on that particular type of foam, but basically what you're going to do is deprive the, the uh, fire of its oxygen. And the foam is like a, a shaving cream, you know. Plop it down on the fire and it's just going to smother it. What about environmental impacts of that foam itself? Are there any? I'm not familiar with exactly what the type of impact there would be. In, in any situation like this, you've got to you know, weigh the, the, the cost of doing the job uh, versus the effect, and I'm not just exactly sure what the environmental impact of the uh, foam would be. 3M's aqueous film-forming foam, or AFFF, soon smothered the blaze. Its quick extinguishing characteristics are what made the Navy excited about the foam when it was invented in 1966, and it was quickly adopted by the entire military soon after. 
aircraft fires kill more pilots and crew than crashes do, and it was essential to have a method of putting out fires quickly. Over the past 20 years, some question has been put on 3M's claim that the foam was biodegradable. Experts now saying that the foam contained PFAS, which may increase health risks. The military stopped using the original AFFF in 2016. But I was told back then that, oh, that's organic, you don't have to worry about that. And that's not part of that lawsuit either, because the Saginaw River had three feet of foam. You know, everybody was exposed to all that. It looked like snow drifts. Right now, the river is shut down to all boating traffic, both business, commercial, and recreational. The question is now, when they do get this fire out, what are they going to be able to do with the Jupiter? Uh, there was a concern that it would go to the bottom and sink, and then you're going to have a heck of a job getting that th thing out of the way there now. Uh, I would still expect there's going to be a, quite a job in getting the uh, Jupiter out of the shipping channel, even as it is, but maybe we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. First of all, this fire has to be put out from my vantage point on top of the Independence Bridge, though it looks like we are a big step in that direction. Mike Avery's hesitancy was right on, as the fire was announced extinguished by 3.30 Monday afternoon, but the hot haul reignited the remaining gasoline just four hours later rocking nearby homes and knocking picture frames off walls as the Jupiter burst into flames again. Mighty 790 WSGW, it's 927. Good evening, this just in from the 24-hour newsroom. The MV Jupiter, the ship that erupted into flames Sunday morning, has reignited itself. Uh, Bay County 911 just called the radio station here and is asking everyone to please stay off the Independence Bridge, both the east and west sides, because within a matter of minutes, the Independence Bridge in Bay City will be closed down by county authorities. No one was more surprised than Boots and Coots, who were allegedly having a Texas-sized celebration off-site, thinking their services were no longer needed. And they fought that fire and they put it out and then they, they high-fived each other and went back to the hotel and got sauced. Well, guess what happened? A reflash. Well, they could come back and put it out because they weren't in any condition. So the next morning, by the time they were well enough to put the fire out, it had almost put itself out. About five minutes ago, we had another blast right about the middle of the Jupiter and a momentary acceleration of flames shooting into the air, and then it died back down. We've had a series of these blasts now again in the last couple of hours this morning, uh, similar to the blast that occurred last night shortly after the fire rekindled. I talked uh, earlier this morning with Dan Lacey, the vice president of Ashland Oil Company, as to uh, how things were holding up out at the vessel. And just monitoring her, and, and uh, she's burned down. Uh, uh, you can see the flames have gone down significantly during the night, so uh, we think she's uh, stabilizing somewhat. We'll go down and assess things a little bit more as soon as uh, we get some daylight. And, and, and the two options are either let it burn or uh, go in and hit it with foam again. That's right. That's exactly right. And that decision hasn't been made yet. Uh, no, that decision has not been made yet, and it will not be made until we uh, uh, put some sort of plan together and make recommendations and get approval from all the interested uh, government agencies. Dan Lacey, Vice President of Ashland Oil Company, and we have that daylight now, so a lot of people should be able to start getting some of that assessment information they wanted, Terry. The DNR wants to look at just how much oil and ethylene glycol is in the water. They want to check to make sure there's no gasoline in the water, and uh, the people from the shipping company want to get a look at it, as does everyone else. 
And we're going to have our next media briefing at 9 o'clock this morning. Right. And hopefully by that time they should have made a decision as to whether or not they're going to try to foam it or let it burn itself out. But earlier we were told by Chief Jerry Marklevich that uh, the DNR wants the fire out. So my estimation is that they're going to come in and they're going to foam it. And I really don't think it's going to take long to put it out this time compared to uh, yesterday when there was a much bigger fire and a lot more uh, petroleum on board at that time. Michigan Governor Jim Blanchard arrived on the disaster scene and told reporters that the overnight delay likely helped the chances for the fire to be extinguished that next morning. They believe that the, um, the, the ship is cooler than yesterday. There are no guarantees in this firefighting technology. As you know, the best firefighters in the world, boots and coots, are here with their equipment. There are still no guarantees, as we said yesterday, but they are going to once again try to put the fire out with foam. They're going to carefully measure the wind conditions here. They think the conditions are good uh, to do that. Obviously, they want to protect the firefighters uh, from unnecessary exposure to emissions. They will have the proper equipment. Uh, they believe that the carbon explosions yesterday make less likely to have another explosion, uh, and they're going to try to put it out. Bay County's Emergency Services Director, Nancy Schroeder, was thrilled at how quickly the second foaming worked. Everybody's feeling very joyous that we've succeeded in the, the amount that we have. Of course, it's not over. Uh, there will be another meeting of what do we do now with the cleanup, uh, meaning the barrels, the vessel, the whatever's in the water, and all of this good stuff. So the mind games aren't over yet, but the hazard is on its way out of here. The only other thing I have to say is I think that the Bangor County Fire Department and Chief Ball did one hell of a job. Coast Guardsman Paul Cormier said it went well because of their relentless practice for emergencies. We can chalk all of it up to training. We train, train, train. So, you know, a lot of it was a result of a tremendous amount of experience in, in training, and it all paid off. You know, the one time in our career, it really paid off. And I'm so happy and proud of the fact we were able to get the job done. You know, we had a big spectator crowd there. Okay, right now it's 11.53 a.m. on Friday, the 21st of September, 1990. We are presently on the tank vessel Jupiter. Coast Guard District 9 assigned the captain of the Port of Chicago, Larry Baylock, to lead their investigation. And we're concentrating on the uh, crew from the Buffalo, getting all of the witness testimony into the record regarding what they saw and what they were doing during the time prior and uh, after the casualty started. This is a, like a big jigsaw puzzle. We have to find the piece that will start to lay the foundation and our fact finding will put these pieces together and ultimately we would like to be able to develop the sequence, the exact sequence of what occurred from the beginning to the end. Keep your hand out in front of you, Tom. You should be coming into the vessel here pretty quick. Your bubbles are right at the vessel. Police divers recovered Tom Sexton's body three days after the initial explosion, about 60 yards downstream of the wrecked ship. The Iowa native had over 19 years as a relief seaman with Ashland Oil, his family saying he also spent time as a part-time history teacher. That next week, the investigation moved to Bay City Hall, where the witnesses were called to the council chambers. 
journalists could record audio, but cameras were not allowed during the testimony. What I'm looking for is, is how the flame is propagated across the deck, how she actually went across the deck, uh, from where the fire first was seen by you aboard the vessel. It happened so fast, it was manifold, and then it seemed like a 75% of both. Where were you when the explosion occurred? The pilot house. Were you looking forward at the time when the explosion occurred? The first indication that there's river traffic coming by. Well, prior to coming in, I can find out who is in the river uh, through uh, Saginaw Coast Guard, and I give my vessel transit report. Part of the puzzle was determining whether the Buffalo was going too fast passing the offloading Jupiter. Photos from a Bay City resident who captured the explosion on film seemed to indicate the Buffalo was pushing away. The photographer believed the ship was going slow, and interviews with the doctor that followed in his sailboat behind the Buffalo seemed to confirm that. Here's Chief Investigator Captain Larry Baylock. With Dr. Asherall's testimony yesterday was uh... Uh, very interesting that his observations of the speed of the buffalo and how it uh, passed uh, up the river from when he first saw it uh, put together uh, some of the uh, ideas that the vessel was not traveling at uh, a high rate of speed in his opinion and uh, that there was no wake uh, generated by the buffalo that he observed. The Buffalo's third mate contradicted his captain, adding nearly a mile and a half to the speed reported by Captain McFalda. Lawyers for Total Petroleum believed it was nearly two miles an hour more, as fast as three and a half miles an hour if the ship made the landmarks at the time reported. The broken piling, which wasn't damaged when an earlier freighter passed, also pointed towards a high rate of speed. Jean Colby herself witnessed the freighter as it transited the Saginaw River. One interesting fact, I did see the buffalo go by, and um, the buffalo did always a little bit go a little too fast. <laughs> so, because Bobby said, hey, the buffalo's coming, and you know, oh, he threw a wake again. So I did see that. But that wasn't the main reason that, that that happened. Those pilings, I believe, needed repair. Captain Baylock agreed with that assessment. The top of the rotted piling was brought into evidence, and the team toured what remained of Total's wharf, which had been renovated four years prior. Uh, we're impressed by the damage to the dock and the fact that the, uh, the uh, cargo piping is, is pulled over. We examined uh, the charred remains of, of the end of the dock and observed that the, uh, the platform uh, going upstream is, is totally destroyed. Uh, we looked at just about everything. We took uh, photographs of, of uh, key pieces of, of information that we want for the record. Lawyers for the injured crewmen attended the inquest and Detroit's Leonard Jocks proved to be one of the most entertaining. Well, I'm blaming it on total, but not totally. Uh, certainly, uh, the Jupiter is uh, keenly at fault. And uh, the it, ship it, herself, the, the, the ship that, that was destroyed is at fault. How oh, so? absolutely. How so? Well, you'll hear testimony throughout this day Can you to give us a hint. To substantiate it, well, two or three things. First of all, uh, the, uh, uh, the vessel itself was moored at an area which on its face or blatantly is an unsafe place 
for a docking, uh, discharging uh, situation. But this was the only place she could unload. This is where she was sent. This was her destination. Put it this way, if it had been an area infested with alligators, all types of reptiles, a hazard to the crew, it would have been that fact alone an unsafe place for captain to dock. But there were no alligators there. No, but there was a circumstance inviting a disaster that did occur. So the captain should not have put her there? Captain shouldn't have put her there. The dock company should not have had it so far out. And as for vessels traveling up and down, uh, there is no speed limit. Certainly there's no indication in the testimony up to now that the uh, Buffalo had exceeded any speed limit uh, whatsoever. Probably that may have been the predicate or the cause for the disaster, but it doesn't necessarily translate into fault. The legal wrangling made Paul happy he never took the bar exam to become a lawyer. Any, any way to get some money, you know, that's the way these, these attorneys are. That's mm -hmm. another reason why I didn't practice. You know, it's not about what you think it's supposed to be about when you practice law, it's about money. The Jupiter was finally moved from the channel on October 17th with the tugs Carolyn and Susan Hoey pulling the ship back into the dock where it initially unloaded. On October 23rd, the Coast Guard declared the river open for traffic. Gene Colby was asked to drive down to the Buffalo and let them know they could finally go home after 38 days stranded in the Saginaw River. I was working that day and they did have me go down to Saginaw where the buffalo was tied up and told them that they can go. So they were happy. They were happy. With cleanup costs nearing $1 million and a loss of ship and fuel at $6 million, Ashland Oil spokesman Dan Lacey outlined what would happen to the Jupiter. Well, our salvage uh, uh, company that we've chosen to do the work will basically try to free the vessel of any hydrocarbons that are there. Uh, so they'll try to get any gasoline-type material, diesel-type, any fuel off the vessel and try to get it uh, safe. Um, then we'll try to get the vessel out of the river channel. That's a real priority. Uh, once that is done, then the third phase will be to try to move the vessel up to the uh, old DeVoe property, the Hirschfield property, uh, where there's a slip. They can pull the vessel in there and then uh, take their time and dismantle the vessel at that point. Seabrex sent down divers to check out the hull before towing the ship to the scrapyard. The owner, Al Seabrex, was surprised at how intact the Jupiter actually was. Considering what I saw on TV before we got here, I never thought it would be in that good a shape. Uh, we found uh, nothing below water level that would, uh, that would uh, indicate there is a problem below water level. No cracks, no holes, uh, nothing. Paul Cormier said it was amazing how protected the engine room was from the intense heat and that Jupiter could have sailed under its own power to the scrapyard. They towed it to the salvage yard, but they, they didn't have to. The engines did start. So that, that was amazing. Propellers, engines, and other equipment could be recycled, but the ship was largely cut into pieces to be smelted into new steel. Paul found several interesting items in the Coast Guard trash. I started grabbing stuff out of the dumpster because Chief threw everything away. Was, I got one of the survival suits and I got the flag. I pulled the flag and I donated that to the Saginaw River Historical um, Museum. Melted by the heat, the flag is now on display at the Dobson Fire Truck Museum in Bay County. 
The gutted pilot house was saved for a museum display, being placed on Middle Island for years until it was eventually scrapped. Its window, along with the Jupiter's stack logo, stern name, and mooring bits, joined the flag at the museum not far from where Jupiter burned. The heroism of the day was reflected in a ceremony that next year. Congressman Bob Traxler presided over the awards at the Bay County Museum December 10, 1991. Total Petroleum employees Elmer Seltz and Ken Foster were awarded Coast Guard silver medals for saving three of the crew. Gene and Bob Colby pinned on gold life-saving medals for the five they brought home. Well, any Coast Guard person or Coast Guard exhorist would have done the same thing in the position that we were in. We happened to be in the right place, uh, uh, you might say at the wrong time, uh, but at the right time for those five folks that we pulled out of the water that morning. Bob's wife, Jean, added that she's honored, but the reward was bringing most of the men home to their loved ones. It, it was great. It's a good feeling, but the better feeling is saving somebody. Yeah, that's the better feeling. Yeah, a medal is a medal. Paul Cormier also received an award telling me the tiny silver O on his ribbon is likely one of a kind. It's the highest I've ever gotten in a whole Coast Guard death. Meritorious service medal with an O device, operational device, which you know, these medals are usually given to commissioned officers, but they don't get to wear that O. And I got, I earned that medal in operations. So I've never, ever seen anybody else with an O device on that medal. Paul is quick to point out there were a lot of brave people at the Jupiter disaster. One was a junior at Millington High School who was among the first on the scene. Matter of fact, we had one of the girls, uh, Naval Sea Cadet, she got a medal for that. That's another service that uh, accompanied us with a part of the team. Lynn Kulinek had just won a science fair in the spring. She was now being pinned with the highest honors in the Navy Sea Cadets. I think she was on the first boat out to help rescue the people out of the water. Yeah, and she probably, that probably really influenced her to join the Coast Guard. Just four years later, Lynn commanded a Coast Guard boat that pulled four fishermen from a shipwreck near Massachusetts. Bob and Gene Colby would also help on other rescues, even unseen for another boat explosion, this time in Cleveland. Mother's Day, just three years later. A guy was fixing his um, generator and it blew up right at the dock. We had just left there from eating there. We had just left there. So we came back, uh, firemen saved the baby in the front, but everybody else was gone, gone. I, I can remember a young uh, Coastie hollering at me, you know, they're underneath the dock, they're underneath the dock, and, you know, there was no way to get under there. But the little boy lived. Fireman jumped on there and got him out. He was in the front part of the boat, and it got him out. So that's, that was, that kind of sticks you when it's with kids. It sticks with you. Bob and Jean later retired their Coast Guard duties and spent more time on dry land. Actually, we had a fifth wheel, and we went to, um, we traveled around Michigan, and then we finally, that gets to you, you know, hauling it back and forth. And Bob would go then take the RV down to the fifth wheel down to Texas. He uh, started volunteering for the National Park Service down there. He did that for quite a few years. And then he started doing the Army Corps of Engineers in Texas. And that's where he got sick. Bob's cancer took him on April 17, 2013. The 27-year veteran of the Coast Guard Auxiliary, dedicating a large portion of his life, making sure others safely enjoyed Michigan's waterways as much as he and Gene did. We just like making the water a part of our life, and we like trying to assist people to be safer on the water, to enjoy the water safely. 
Jupiter was one of Paul Cormier's last assignments at the Saginaw River Coast Guard Station. Let's see, I was active duty from 86 to 90, and then they wanted to send me to Erie, Pennsylvania, so I don't want to go there. So I went back in the reserves. And then they said they're going to reduce the number of reservists at the station. This year only pick is Port Security out of Port Clinton, Ohio. Oh, I don't know if I'd like that, but I, I ended up doing that. I am loving it. It's an expeditionary unit. So you just train, you know, in Lake Erie and you train for deployment. So I had five overseas deployments with that unit. Fate would put Paul in Haiti during one of its worst disasters. I was actually there when the earthquake hit uh, on leave. So once they found me, they were going to send me to Washington because I was the last holdout in the Coast Guard that they found. So they said, oh, you get to go meet the president of the United States. And I said, listen, I speak the language. I know the area. You need me here for the recovery. Over 150,000 people lost their lives and Paul opted to stay for the rebuilding. Oh, you know, I have a school for orphans down there and it had to be rebuilt since the earthquake. And it, it's much bigger and better now. The uh, Rotary Club International funded it. So we've got five classrooms and we built a sixth one and then we built a principal's office since then. And then I raised more money to drill uh, for water because our village had no water. They had the shallow wells and everybody was getting sick. So we were able to raise $10,000 to drill. They had planned on going down 350 feet, but they struck a flowing artesian artery at 120 feet. The water's just flying on it. Like, yes. So now we have pressurized water for the whole village. No pumps needed or anything. We built a, a shower along the street. So if anyone wants to take a shower, they just go in there and take a shower. Paul smiles when he remembers the men and women who responded to the explosions in Bay County in 1990. Sadly, many of them have passed away. The story also seems to have faded from most memories. When I asked my friends about it, they don't even know what ever happened. They weren't, so I wasn't even born yet. Oh, geez. District court found blame went to nearly everyone involved in the accident. The Buffalo was negligent and going too fast and Total Petroleum's rotted piling also contributed to the disaster. Cleveland tankers, owners of the Jupiter, were blamed for faulty flame screens that allowed gas to pour on deck. The court also found the Jupiter's crew didn't close the pipes when the Buffalo passed, allowing the flames to access the cargo tanks. Tom Sexton's family was awarded $2 million as the only fatality of the accident, and the court gave another $2 million to James Warren, who was badly burned. Several of the sailors continued their careers, including Dan Rentschler, who became a captain on one of the largest freighters on the Great Lakes. I reached out to several crew members for this podcast and was either rejected or ignored. I'd like to thank Ken Frierson and Gary Falkenhagen at WNEM and Dave Maurer, retired news director at WSGW, for their help with archive audio and video for this podcast. Interviews included were conducted by Mike Avery, Eric Jyla, Kim Harms, Jay Brando, Tony Miller, Ken Santa, Jim Harrington, Angie Miles, and others. Please respect the individual copyrights of the broadcasters and don't record or share anything without written permission. If you'd like to learn more about Great Lake Shipwrecks, check out my books and videos at your favorite Maritime Museum or online at lakefury.com and click on Store. For ShipwreckPodcast.com, I'm Rick Mixter.